An honorable profession is brought to you by Open Counter. Open Counter builds tools for local governments to deliver permits and licenses online. Their portals make complex permitting simple, which lowers transaction costs, increases transparency, and empowers economic development. Open Counter is a vital tool for communities big and small across the nation, including Atlanta, Charlotte, Oakland, Indianapolis, and San Diego. Check out opencounter.com to see what they can do for your community. Welcome to An Honorable Profession, a podcast giving America hope since 2018. I'm your host, Ryan Coonerty. An Honorable Profession is a New Deal Leaders podcast. The New Deal is an organization that supports some of the most thoughtful and innovative voices in American politics. I've been a member of New Deal for years, both when I was mayor of Santa Cruz and now as chair of the Santa Cruz County Board of Supervisors. Check out our past episodes with guests like Mayor Pete, Wisconsin Lieutenant Governor Mandela Barnes, candidate for U.S. Senate Amanda Edwards, and more than a dozen amazing leaders at the state and local level. You can find us at newdealleaders.org or wherever podcasts are found. Hey, and if you like what we're doing, please tell your friends. We're trying to bring sanity to politics in an insane era. We need all the help we can get. Today, I'm talking with Nevada Attorney General Aaron Ford. We talked about his journey from growing up in poverty in Dallas to obtaining two master's degrees, a PhD, and a law degree before being elected to the Nevada Senate and then Attorney General in 2018. He talks about his priorities and to those following the presidential race, what candidates need to do to win in Nevada. This guy is crazy smart. Enjoy our conversation. Attorney General Ford, thank you for joining us. It's great to talk to you today. Thank you so much. Happy to be here. Let's talk first about your path into politics. You were born and raised in Texas. Uh, you went to grad school in Washington, D.C., law school in Ohio. How'd you end up in Nevada? And then I want to talk a little bit about how you ended up in elective life. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, again, thank you so much for having an opportunity to uh, participate in the podcast. Uh, my path into politics is somewhat um, typical, I I would say, Um, starting at the grassroots level. I I recall my first political campaign kind of being in the 2003-2004 range where I was uh, in in Dallas at the time and I was able to be elected as the precinct captain for uh, my precinct and um, went on to work for, for the General Wesley Clark campaign in Dallas. I was one of the Dallas County coordinators, one of the four that he had during that time period. Uh, you know, fast forward to 2010, um, my wife and I and my children had relocated back here to Nevada. Um, I say relocated back because we first lived here in 2000. We moved here for my wife's uh, um, job as a federal judge on the Ninth Circuit. And uh, I got involved in politics at the, um, I guess I should back up even further than that, at the 07 level uh, when Barack Obama was running. And so I was working at the Clark County Democratic Party. I was the minority outreach chair um, and helped to coordinate our convention during that time period. A few years later, I ran for office in 2010. Uh, I got smashed. I got <laughs> lost. I, I lost, you know, badly, uh, something like 62 to 28 or something like that. Um, but, you know, it was an interesting experience. I was living in a part of town that was uh, um, that leaned Republican, but I, I was, wasn't willing to move, if you will, to uh, run for office. And uh, fortunately, two years later, redistricting took place. 
uh, or the next session of redistricting took place, and I was able to, uh, when we bought a new home, be in a different district. Uh, so I ran for office again in 2012. Uh, this time um, I won. I won the state senate race in that district, and uh, two years later I was elected minority leader. Uh, two years after that, elected majority leader. Uh, and um, I guess, what, what, eight, nine months ago, I was, I was elected as attorney general. So it's been an interesting ride. And I want to dive into what you've done in each one of those roles. But one of the things I read was that uh, your first run for office where you actually ran sort of came as a challenge from your son, uh, where, where uh, our kids are often wants to, uh, to point out what we should and shouldn't be doing. Mm-hmm. And in this case, your son uh, sort of Put you to the test. You want to tell us that story? That's interesting because, as I've indicated, we moved around a little bit. You you talked touched on my educational uh, endeavors, and I lived in D.C. Um, uh, well, I had my son when I was in college, um, as a junior in college, and that's an entirely different story. But um, and so he's been with me since I was 21, and uh, he's moved around with me and my wife uh, until. Finally, we made it back to Vegas, but we had been living in Dallas for about three years, and that was from 03 to, oh, rather, 03 to 07, so about four years. And uh, we moved back to Vegas, and my son said, well, you know, you've always said, Dad, that everything you do is for the family. Um, is that right? And I was like, yeah, I'm glad you understand that, son. Everything I do is for the family. Um, he says, well, if that's the case, why would you move us from Texas to Nevada, which is ranked number 50 in education? Uh, and he started laughing and said, gotcha, Dad. You know, he, was, he thought he was joking with me, but he actually lit a fire under me and made me think about how best to uh, help facilitate his ability to become a doctor, which is what he was, he's always wanted to do. And so I wanted to run on the, uh, and get on the inside as, as opposed to throwing rocks from the outside complaining about the school system uh, and ran for the state senate, um, you know, at, at his behest, if you will. So, uh, yeah, that, that was my entree into politics. I hope he, uh, I hope he uh, licked a few envelopes for you after all that and walked a few I put him to work. Absolutely, that's right. That's, that's <laughs> he had to have a little sweat equity in the game. <laughs> That'll teach him to yeah. uh, challenge you again. Um, so uh, let's talk a little bit about um, you know you were a, a single dad, um, a young single dad, and you've talked about how that experience um, gave you insight into pu- future public policy. Can you talk a little bit about you know how how that experience? shaped uh, what you've tried to do ever since? Absolutely. Um, you know, I, I kind of call my life uh, um, uh, pre-Avery and post-Avery. That's my oldest son's name. He's 26 years old now. And uh, like I said, I was a junior in college, age 21, uh, when I became a parent. Uh, six months after he was born, I became a single parent. Uh, and, and uh, you know, that time, again, during that time period was a growth period. I, I talked about uh, being born and raised in inner city Dallas with uh um, certain challenges that were that were associated with being raised in a city. Um, my mom and dad worked hard, but we didn't have a lot, and so sometimes the water and the gas and the lights wouldn't come on in the house, and uh, the, the neighborhoods in which we lived didn't have um, uh, the finest amenities, and in fact, they were pretty tough. So, uh, you know, I, I was able and fortunate to be able to be enrolled in a program called Project Upward Bound in high school, which was a program for people like me who uh, were um, not affluent uh, and whose parents didn't go to college. Uh, and that program literally saved my life. It helped me uh, stay off the streets on Saturdays and instead had me at school at Southern Methodist University uh, four hours a day studying. Uh, and instead of me being in the streets uh, during the summers, I was at SMU for six weeks. So that program really helped me a lot. And, uh, you know, it's interesting. You had asked me earlier how I got involved in politics. Um, during that time of my life, politics was the first thing from my mind. We didn't talk about it in my house. My mom, my dad, my, you know, my stepdad, we didn't, we didn't talk about it. But I recall uh, being in Project Upward Bound and, and, and literally experiencing it changing my life and hearing from the director at one point that 
the current president at the time, um, uh, Ronald Reagan, was attempting to cut back the funding for Project Upper Bound and programs like mine, uh, like that. It was called the TRIO programs. And these were programs, again, to help low-income and uh, underprivileged kids. And, and um, I didn't know anything about politics, but I said to myself that if this is what Republicans believe in, then I must be a Democrat. <laughs> <laughs> and so I, I declared myself a Democrat in high school because of uh, what I saw happening. And, and that um, propelled me into um, um, wanting to um, be involved in a government that helps people. Um, you know, being a single parent, uh, I almost dropped out of college. Um, and uh, fortunately, again, um, because of a government that helped people, I was able to stay in college and I got on welfare. I got on Section 8 housing. I got on women, infant, and children. Yeah, men get wicked too. Uh, had Medicaid, um, and we had food stamps. And uh, I had a helpful uh, mother back in Dallas as well. And so through that type of assistance, I was able to finish my college career and went from having zero degrees almost to uh, eight years later having five degrees. Uh, and at the end of the day, uh, I am able to uh, reflect back on the assistance that I got from a government that's intended to help folks and not hinder folks. And so that's, that's the reason why I fight for things I fight for to this day. How do you think the Democrats seem to not, not do a, as good a job as we should? at telling that story of, of when government works, when it, when it helps lift people up and it gives them opportunity that they otherwise wouldn't have. How do you think the party, as a national party, and here in, in Nevada, should be talking about government programs? Well, that's just it. Um, it's not about talking about it. Uh, where I'm from, the, one of the cliches was, don't talk about it, be about it. Um, and have your record demonstrate that you, in fact, believe the things that, uh, about which you speak. Uh, and, and so when you are given the opportunity to hit the green button for legislation that supports uh, working class families and poor families, then you should do that. When you have the opportunity to stand up and, and face down discrimination, um, which is, is um, um, at a plenty these days, then you should speak up and, then, and, and you should try to enact policies that are going to protect people uh, as opposed to, um, you know, acquiescing and being quiet and just kind of riding the, the you know, the, the safe bus, if you will. So, uh, you know, I think here in Nevada, um, we have uh, a great microcosm of the of the rest of the country, whereby uh, we have a very diverse community, um, and uh, that diversity has enriched us. Uh, but it has also brought with us a responsibility uh, uh, to the elected officials that we do more than just talk about it. And so, those candidates coming in, the twenty four who exist, who are running right now for president on the Democratic side, uh, need to be able to point to actual things that they've done. Um, as opposed to policies and uh, uh, promises of, the, the, of what they will do. Um, and, and I think that's going to um, help um, be a, sift, a sieve, if you will, for some of the candidates here in Nevada. Are there any candidates? I know they're, they're, they're trekking through right now. Are there any candidates you're seeing that are really resonating with Nevadans uh, in terms of their message, in terms of uh, showing a record that, that demonstrates what, what the people here want? Well, I think the diversity of our community um, um, enables many of our candidates to resonate with several segments of the community. Um, and I've not endorsed anyone. I've met with quite a few of them, and I've been in some of the circles uh, that they've uh, walked in to ensure that I am self, I myself am um, educated on what their positions are. Um, you know, Kamala Harris has been here. Cory Booker has been here. Um, Joe Biden has been here. Um, um, Julian Castro has been here. Um, Amy Klobuchar, um, you know, you, you name it, and I probably shouldn't have 
significant naming because there are several others who've been here uh, as well. And, and again, while I've not endorsed anyone, I do think that uh, those who are able to point to actual um, things that they've done as opposed to simply make promises of what they will do uh, will be those that have a, a better opportunity to resonate with uh, the residents here in our state. And just to uh, dork out politically for a second, so Nevada runs a caucus system, which is obviously different than, than most states and the primary systems they run. What sort of organization does a does a, an effective campaign need to have to win in that system versus just a traditional primary election? Well, I think boots on the ground, um, to, uh, to, to borrow a um, um, military statement, uh, is very important here. I think uh, having a great team that's organized out here that uh, is reaching out to the communities at different events, going to the people where they are, um, is, is one of the best ways to ensure that uh, you can have um, your best foot forward when it comes to this caucus system. What you have to have within our system is someone who can articulate your vision, uh, articulate your position, uh, who can defend your position, and, and, and who can distinguish between uh, the candidate and other candidates uh, in the caucus room. And if they have not been here well enough, uh, you know, long enough to be able to uh, develop a um, um, a base of folks who can do that, then they have a less likely chance of being able to to persuade others or to to have others be persuaded that they are the candidate that should be re- uh, receiving our endorsement. So TV ads and uh, and big rallies won't necessarily translate here. It ha- it's going to take it's going to take volunteers and the locals. Well, I don't think it's uh, I don't think it's an either or, frankly. I mean, I do think that big rallies and I do think that television commercials are important. I think that radio commercials are important. I think that flyers in the mailboxes are going to be important. But I also think that people at the doors, people in the communities, um, um, one on one communication and conversation with with individuals is going to be very important as well. Going back to your time as majority leader, I mean, you took on some big issues. You took on pharma. You took on the financial services industry for conflicts of interest. Uh, you advocated for a number of different places uh, for women and rights in the workplace, uh, the clearing of, of rape kits. Those are big, hard issues to take on. And in a politically uh, swing state or a volatile state where the control the legislature switches back and forth. How did you do that? And, you know, what, what, what are the lessons for Democrats around the country who may, who may want to take on these issues, but think that um, those are some big industries and big interests to take on? Well, it's similar to the answer I gave a second ago um, about what a candidate has to demonstrate in order to, to get a following here. And that is you have to be about it. Um, when I was minority leader, um, I, I led the Democratic caucus under a Republican regime that attempted to disenfranchise many when it came to, for example, voting um, and, and attempted to, to dismantle unions and attempted to dismantle our public education system and, uh, and looked at ways to um, um, just really um, undermine people's existence. And, and as minority leader, I was able to, with the help of a caucus of, of 10 at that point, stand up. Um, and speak out and hold them accountable by, frankly, tattling on them, <laughs> ensuring that we yeah. had conversations with the community to tell them, you know, um, this is what's happening in Carson City. Uh, a lot of times we get in elected office and we think that we that this bubble that we are living in is one that that won't, um, um, you know, grow large enough to encompass the rest of the state. And we made it a point to let the rest of the state know what the Republicans were doing. And so that's how we were able to, I believe, regain the majority. One of the ways we were able to re- regain the majority. The unions at the time had a saying. Uh, 
hashtag never again uh, because they uh, essentially sat home. We had a blue boycott in 2014, and that's what had us lose the majority. Uh, and, and so never again um, was the was the rallying cry, and we were able to in 2017 regain the majority and um, advocate for, for policies and programs that would uh, help to expand access to the middle class uh, and to uh, uh, help people who were either trying to get into or already part of the middle class to continue to grow and to provide for themselves and their families. Um, you have to do it, and you have to stand up for the issues that are important to you. Um, you know, to be sure, it came with difficulties. It came with threats from big industries. Once even one even telling me that I needed to be cautious about taking them on because they may take me on for my next election. Uh, my response to them was very simple: If what you're threatening to do is send me home to my wife and kids, then you're doing me a favor. <laughs> uh, and I proceeded to take on That's that industry, answer. and we got um, some good stuff passed. Um, and so you have to, in my estimation, from your position of power, always be willing to speak truth to power. Um, uh, so many times we get to a position and we think that it's uh, safer to shirk responsibilities and to shrink uh, um, into a, a position of safety. And, and, and I don't believe in that. I don't buy that um, philosophy. And, and that's how we were able to get a lot of stuff done uh, when I was uh, uh, both minority and majority leader. I've also read one of the ways that you were able to get stuff done is just by engaging with people and and being a fair uh a fair leader. Uh, the example that I was uh, read about that I thought was most intriguing was when you were chair of the Natural Resources Committee, and your and your quote was something along the lines <laughs> like, "I don't hunt, I don't fish, I don't camp," uh, and yet yet they made you uh, the chair. And it's those are oftentimes the most challenging issues. But you won all these plaudits uh, from from across the political spectrum for your work. Can you talk about? Uh, many of us in politics, you know, we sort of run because we want to pursue our agenda. Um, sometimes an agenda is foisted upon us uh, that that may not we may not even know. How do you how did you find the interest to engage on those issues? And then to become a real leader on on natural resources. Yeah, that's a um, I, I do relish that quote um, <laughs> because I remember on my first day of the, of the chair of the natural resources committee, I did say I don't hunt, I don't fish, I don't camp, I don't hug trees. I said hell, I don't go outside. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm not sure why they appointed me chair of natural resources, but it ended up being a great opportunity for me because I had no dog in the hunt, so to speak. Excuse the pun, right? Yeah. Uh, and so these issues that oftentimes um, 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 had um, uh, diametrically opposed dichotomies, if you on positions uh, allowed me to require people to come and sit at the same table and to try to find a compromise. And um, I think we may have had two or three bills out of the 50 or so that ultimately percolated through our committee that were not unanimous. Uh, That is, 47 or so were unanimous. Um, And it's because of um, the intent that I have, which is to always try to get folks at the table and try to work out compromise. Uh, I believe in incremental uh, steps uh, and uh, to to improve uh, things that we do. And so, uh, you know, I I took that, I think, to the minority leader's office and uh, continue to advocate that approach in the majority leader's office. Uh, to be sure, some things are so black and white that, that sometimes there is no compromise and it's either yes or no. Uh, but most things um, you should be able to find a compromise on and uh, move the state forward in a way that uh, isn't always hyper-partisan and, and, and political. You've uh, you've now been uh, in the attorney general's office for seven months uh, after a bruising and close election. Um, 
you've taken on you've already co- taken on some big interests, including the opioid uh, manufacturers, uh, bringing a lawsuit against them. Can you uh, talk about some of your priorities, both from a policy perspective and a legal perspective, but then also as a as a statewide leader? When I was walking uh, into your lobby, you have all the former attorney generals uh, on the wall. Uh, none of them look like you. Mm. Uh, and you know what are you what are you doing both? from a policy and legal perspective, but also as a, as a statewide official um, to make sure that maybe a 19-year-old a who's uh, struggling trying to get through college uh, or may not even be considering college may end up in elective office someday. Yeah. Well, I appreciate that question. And, um, you know, I, I, I think it's fair to say that most people in this office who were here when I began on January the 7th, um, will be able to recite what I'm about to tell you. And that is, uh, I have three areas of focus um, as an umbrella, um, and, and they are my three C's, as we call them. Um, consumer protection, um, constitutional rights slash civil rights, and the protection of the citizenries and the residents' um, rights in those regards. And then criminal justice and criminal justice reform. Those are the areas that on our day two, day one was a lot of uh, um, you know, celebratory stuff. We didn't honestly get much done. right? <laughs> but on day two, we had our all hands on deck meeting. I was in Carson City and we had every member of uh, this office and all of our offices get in front of our um, tele, uh, uh, televisions. And, and I gave them um, what I consider to be my areas of priority. And I detail those three C's. And, and the reasons why those are so important is because from a consumer protection um, um, position, I want to ensure that Nevadans um, of, of all stripes, shades, ages, uh, um, and gender are treated fairly by the businesses and entities that are operating here uh, and ensuring that they know that they have someone who's always going to look out for Nevada families first when it comes to consumer protection. Uh, and uh, I ran on that issue. Um, I legislated on that issue. You talked about taking on the pharmaceutical companies, if you will, on the insulin diabetes um, um, legislation, which incidentally, I should give credit where it's due. The primary sponsor of the bill was Senator Ivana Cancella, and I was fortunate to work with her to in order in order to find a compromise again to get that passed. But that's an example of me continuing uh, the consistency of, of focusing on consumer protection. Uh, from a, um, a constitutional slash civil rights perspective, um, what I'm about to say leaks over into the criminal justice uh, focus as well, because in my estimation, there are at least three types of communities out there. Um, some communities have no trust at all in government. None. They just don't trust government. Uh, and sometimes it's for good reason, because government has mistreated them or has abandoned them or has not given them the resources necessarily uh, that, that they need in order to succeed. Uh, there are communities that had some level of trust in government, but that trust has eroded or some has uh, it has diminished for some reason. And then there are some that just have all the trust in the government. You, you know, you get a government official talking, they're going to you know, automatically say that's the Bible. Um, and so what I want to do is be able to um, augment trust where it exists. Um, I want to restore trust where it's been diminished. And I want to create trust where it doesn't exist. Uh, and so focusing on the civil rights component to ensure that as a top law enforcement officer, for example, if you come in contact with my office, I want you to, to know that if you're going to jail, <laughs> you have not had your rights violated. You were not unreasonably searched and seized under the Fourth Amendment. Uh, you received due process protections under my office. You were treated equally and fairly under the law uh, and that your constitutional rights are important. And when we see those rights being violated, for example, by the federal government when it comes to, for example, a woman's right to choose what to do with her body, uh, then this office is going to speak up and speak out against 
that and use our voice in court, if you will, uh, to protect your ability to have your constitutional right unfettered, if you will. Uh, and comparably with the criminal justice reform system um, uh, uh, approach, uh, what we want to do is to ensure that people know that we have a fair criminal justice system. We all know that black and brown people are disproportionately represented in our criminal justice system. You said you looked at the pictures of the former attorneys general when you walked in, and I don't look like any of them. Um, for those of you who don't know, I'm an African-American male, uh, and, and I recognize from personal experience uh, interactions with the criminal justice system where I didn't per personally receive the exercise of discretion that others of a lighter hue, if you will, um, received in their interactions with, with law enforcement. And so I try to have that focus uh, as well to ensure that we're able to um, create a fairer, um, um, more appropriate criminal justice system. Uh, there are other items that we'll work on, obviously, that fall outside of the, those kind of areas, if you will, from a, uh, for example, rape kits. And we, we, we have a task force that looks to ensure that they're tested appropriately. Uh, we focus on um, domestic violence and um, sexual assault and violence and um, uh, things of that sort as well. But uh, those are predominantly the three C's that, that I've communicated to my uh, colleagues here that, that I'd like to focus on. And in terms of reforming the criminal justice system, it's obviously in great need of reform. Uh, what sort of initiatives do you think, one, fix the system, but two, uh, do what you said, which is to create trust in communities that that have no trust? And so, so even if you even if you make great strides, if there's not the trust, so much of the division continues. Yeah. Um, so. Uh, two things. Uh, being from inner city Dallas, Texas, um, I had um, a, a dual, dueling minds when it came to the police. Um, I wanted them in my communities to protect us. And frankly, I welcomed them sometimes in our communities when things were happening and that we needed protection. So I have a great admiration for what law enforcement does. I'm a part of law enforcement at this point. I wear a badge uh, and I am the top law enforcement officer in the state. Uh, and I have every intention on keeping the public safe. Safe. At the same time, I want to ensure that the public trusts us and the way that to um, establish trust where none exists or, as I've indicated, augment or uh, um, restore trust is to interact more consistently uh, with the public. Uh, and my investigators here, for example, know that they have a, 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 a new mandate, and that's to be more in the community. Uh, my consumer protection individuals, which, um, while they don't represent criminal justice necessarily, represent uh, know that they represent a face of the attorney general's office, which most people think is purely criminal jurisdiction, if you will. Uh, and so we interact with people um, as frequently as we can um, and as positively as we can, again, to let them know that when you interact with us, um, while you may be on the um, 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 penal side of things, we're going to treat you fairly and equally, uh, and um, um, you can hopefully uh, begin to see uh, the restoration and creation of trust uh, between our office and the community. Last question, um, and I'm just sort of curious on your take. So you lived a lot of different places, and you you could have worked in any number of places. You chose Nevada. Um, for those of us that, that sort of just know Nevada by uh, Las Vegas, uh, or when we see the record temperatures uh, mm. today as we speak, I think it's 113 degrees outside. It's hot. It's very hot. Um, what, what are those outside the state? What should we know about Nevada and the people who live here uh, that makes it a good place to be, to be an elected official? Yeah. Well, not only did I choose Nevada, I chose it twice. Um, you know, I jokingly say I'm from I'm not from here originally, but I got here as fast as I could both times. Um, 
I I think what people should know about our state is that, again, it is a microcosm of the United States. Uh, it's a place where, um, generally speaking, you can come here um, and you can put in the work and you can become and be what it is you want to be. Uh, does that mean that we don't have issues? Obviously not. Absolutely not. Um, does it mean that discrimination, for example, doesn't still occur uh, in this state that they once called the Mississippi or the West? Uh, no, it doesn't mean that at all. But what it does mean is that we have a community here um, that is less tolerant of that type of nonsense. Uh, you talked about my election to, to this office. Uh, when I tell you that it was filled with dog whistles um, and some of those dog whistles were uh, outright bullhorns, um, I mean that 100 uh, percent. I anticipated receiving some of that type of attention, uh, but living it is entirely different. And what I'm most proud of about this election, frankly, is that the electorate here looked past that nonsense. They were not persuaded by it at the end of the day. And they elected an individual to this office um, uh, that they believe was going to put Nevada families first. Uh, and it is, it's, it's been my intention for the seven months that I've been here to demonstrate that they were correct in their assessment. Uh, and I want to thank them for uh, allowing um, people of all stripes, uh, shades, colors, genders, uh, and from all over the country and all over the world, frankly, to come here and to thrive. And that election, it was nasty. How did... Uh how did you cope with it? And probably more importantly, how'd your family cope with it? Yeah. It, you know, you got what? four kids. That's, that's not fun to yeah. see your dad go through that. It was very difficult, frankly. Um, it was, again, I, I anticipated what I called being Willie Horton. <laughs> and I'll let you go look that up if yeah. in, the, in the radio audience, if you don't know what that is. <laughs> uh, but, but living it was entirely different, especially when my children were, um, targeted by some of the attacks. Um, when, you know, I had to go home and, and talk to my sons about, uh, this issue. Um, but what there were two things that that continued um, to uh, help me move forward, and one of which was my family. They, they were my backbone. They were my rock. My wife was there. My, my sons were there, uh, and they were um, um, staunch supporters of mine, notwithstanding the nonsense that they were seeing on TV and hearing, you know, elsewhere. Um, but there's also a story that I'll share as we close out that that really keeps me moving. And, and some of my colleagues in the state senate have heard this before. Um, you know, when I was first elected in 2013, 2012, and uh, was again inaugurated on in February of 2013, um, my whole family came up here from Texas because everybody's from Texas. 24, 25, maybe 30 people were here. And they were sitting on the Senate floor with me as I was being sworn in. And uh, we did the ceremony. I got sworn in and it was time for everyone to leave and, and head back to the airport to go back to Dallas as we did uh, additional work in the Senate. And I escorted my entire family, including my father-in-law, who at the time was probably around Seven, you know, late seventies, um, to 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 the back of the building where a lot of the buses were waiting to take people back to the airport. And I got to the bus, and my my stepfather, my uh, father-in-law, said to me, uh, "You know, I'm very proud of you." And do you know why? And I was, and I, and I said, "Yeah, of course I know why, because I'm Senator Ford. That's why you're proud of me, right?" And he says, "Well, yeah, that too, but I don't know if you noticed this or not." He says to me, "He said, uh, as we walk from the front of the building to the back of the building, uh, they opened up doors for you. Uh, they called you Senator. They called you Mister." They called you doctor because they have a PhD in education. He says um, they ha they gave you all of these nice um, um, recognitions. You know they called me boy till I was forty. That's what he said to me, and, and that was my first day on the job as a state senator, and uh, that has been um, a guiding force for me to remind me that my parents, my grandparents, my parent, my, my wife's parents and grandparents, they went through so much more than what I have to deal with. If the worst I have to do is deal with name calling then uh, I counted a blessed day. 
Um, I'm not getting dogs sicked on me, if that's the right tense. Uh, I'm not getting water hoses, you know, turned on me. Uh, I'm not being overtly denied the right to vote like my parents and grandparents were. Um, I'm not getting called boy to my face until I'm and I, by that time I was 42 years old. Uh, and so uh, I reflect back on the challenges of my ancestors and it, it drives me to continue to want to represent as well as I can in the face of whatever nonsense people bring my way. Um, so that's the answer to that question. Thank you. That's a great answer and, uh, and a great reminder for everyone out there. Uh, uh, it seems tough now, but you can always put it in context and, um, and appreciate the previous generation's public service and work to make, to make things a little bit better for all of us. Absolutely. General Ford, thank you for joining us today. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you, sir. Thanks for listening to An Honorable Profession. Please subscribe to hear more amazing leaders. And keep asking your elected officials to be honorable. Boots Row Group produces podcasts. I'm Ryan Coonerty, and because we're keeping things honorable, no tax dollars were used in the making of this podcast.